Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and open up to page 903. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers earnestly desiring to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we start. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today we will be finishing up the four-part series of chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians. Chapter 14 is a smaller part to the larger instruction Paul is giving to the Corinthians on gathered worship, starting from chapter 11, starting off with women uncovering their heads to the malpractices of the Lord's Supper, to the misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts, to the understanding that love should undergird all our practices in chapter 13, and to to how this pursuit of love now should inform our understanding of the place, purpose, protocol concerning tongues. Paul is saying that if you understand that love is the foundational motivator behind gifts, then you would understand that gifts are given to edify. Gifts are given to edify. That means gifts are given to build up others in the church. It's not yourself. You aren't given gifts to build yourself up that is fruitless and useless. You're not given gifts to build up God as if he was lacking in anything that you need to build him up. And God has given us gifts to edify others in the church. And so now this passage that we'll be going over today will wrap up not only this chapter, but everything from chapter 11 on how the church is to act when we are gathered in assembly. It's only after these instructions that Paul goes on from the instruction 
then to the ascent up the mountain regarding the glories of the resurrection, which we'll start covering from next week in chapter 15. But now Paul's emphasis in chapter 14, while repudiating the perversion and misuse of the gift of tongues, is to point out that when the church comes together, all things must be done to edify, all things must be done to build up. Again, the word for edify or build up is translated from the Greek word oikodome, which parsed means oikos, it means house or home, and dome, to build up. So oikodome means to build this house. This charge and instruction isn't given only to leaders of the church. It's given to every single member of the body. Every member of the body has been given gifts to oikodome, to build the other members of the church. And the instructions in this chapter was to never act selfishly. We are not here to edify ourselves. We are to be given into giving others, giving to others, or edifying others. And Paul instructs the church, just like he did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 11, that because Jesus is coming again, because Jesus is coming again, he says in 5, 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Because Jesus is coming again, he's saying you need to edify one another. In Romans 15, 2, he says, let us please, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, speaking, the, speaking truth in love is not to be taken as a dialectic where you have these two terms opposing each other or contradicting each other. Such as, I'll give you an example of where people have taken it as a dialectic. Love without truth isn't love. Or truth without love is harsh. No, these two terms that we just read, truth in love, these are complementing terms where you would see that speaking truth could get you cut off. Speaking the truth could get you hated on. But... Because of the agape love that you would have for the brother or sister, it would compel you to tell them the truth because that is what's going to edify. That's what's going to build up. And by the way, the word for truth in Ephesians 4.15 is to be taken like reality. Telling, the, telling someone the truth is telling them the reality of their situation. And people can and will hate you for it. This is not, this, this, this verse has been misconstrued, it's been abused, it's not been taken in context well. This is not about, oh, you could have said things better or more lovingly. That's not the point of the verse. And so when the church is gathered together, we are given gifts so that we can build one another up. Again, not the self. That's what's being emphasized in this chapter and prior ones, because it is the edification in our gatherings that will mature the Christian. This is what makes the Christian 
grow. This is why it's such an important issue for Paul. However, edification was non-existent in the Corinthian church. There was only confusion and disorder in services. People even screaming out blasphemous statements without any correction, like Jesus is accursed, like it said in chapter 2, verse 3. You can't shout anything that you want. You can't mutter or utter gibberish. There is no such thing as ecstatic speech in the Christian faith. These things were all covered in detail in the previous three sermons. And we've covered the place of tongues, which it is secondary and inferior to prophecy. The preaching of God's word. And we've covered the purpose of tongues. It was a sign. And now in these final verses, we'll cover the protocol or the praxis of tongues. On that note, it's marvelous what the scriptures teach us about theology and practice. Paul gives doctrine first and then goes over the praxis. In verses 1 to 25 of this chapter, it was theology or doctrine. And in the latter portion that was read today, it's procedural. It's praxis. It's because only when you have orthodoxy, you'll have orthopraxy. Ortho means right or correct. So it's only when you have the right doctrines, you'll have the right practices. Paul not only does that here, but he also does that in the book of Romans. For 11 chapters in the book of Romans, he just expounds scripture upon scripture. He gives the right doctrine after doctrine. And then right from chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He goes on from 11, from all the theology to 12, and the hinge verse is, Praxis. He's going to say this is how you are to practice correctly or rightly. It's not just in Romans or in 1 Corinthians, even in Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3 is about correct doctrine. And then chapters 4 to 6 is about correct practice. The transition verse, again in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There are other places in the Bible Paul marries these Paul marries like would marry these two concepts together like in Titus 3:8 the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God that's orthodoxy may be careful to devote themselves to good works that's orthopraxy and these things are excellent and profitable for people the reason why Paul spends so much time on correcting the Corinthians' doctrine is that without it, they'll never have the correct practice. And people even now listening may be tempted to respond, look, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just tell me. Give me the three points of what I need to do. And so that attitude, as eager and genuine as it seems, is empty and it will inevitably lead to disorder and chaos precisely what we are seeing in the church in Corinth even in this chapter and in our sermon series the first three of this sermon series were on orthodoxy 
Only after these three is someone able to have orthopraxy. So in verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. What then? I mean, the, the literal Greek words is, what it be then? That's, this means, what is this then, brothers? What is this that I'm saying? So after all that I've said and taught you thus far, doctrine, what is this that I'm seeing happening? Each one or every one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, tongue, or interpretation. How is, this, how is it then that this is happening? After all that I've given you about the proper understanding of gifts and tongues, how can you have this happen? That's the, the tempo. That's the tone of this verse. Because everyone was going after the spectacular and fantastical gifts. Everyone was bringing in a whole mishmash of gifts so that they could all one-up each other. I have a voice too. God gave me something to bring to the table. And apparently they were doing all of this at the same time. And so you can imagine the chaos and confusion it wrought. So Paul is saying, look. This is what's happening. Everyone is just getting up and shouting things, and no one can be edified this way. In fact, this is why Paul would even say in the previous verses that when an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Will they not say when they see that everyone's speaking out of turn that you are all raving lunatics? And so when the church was gathered... It wasn't only that the bugle was playing random notes. When the church was gathered, everyone showed up with their own bugles and noisemakers and just playing whatever they wanted. Imagine the chaos that would ensue at every gathering. Not only did each one have their own psalm or song, but they would have their own lesson. The word for lesson is didache, the teaching of doctrine. So people would come in playing or singing whatever they wanted, and others would be standing up in the middle of service trying to teach. So they would gather as many people as they could to whatever corner was available, and they were teaching. And then you have revelation, people that thought that they were prophets, trying to trump those with another teaching from the Word of God. And then you have people speaking in tongues and different languages. And then you have others trying to interpret and possibly even argue which interpretation was correct. This is all happening at the same time, in the same place when they were all gathered. And the way Paul calls to stop this chaos is to give the resolution. What's the resolution? Let all things be done for building up. Let all things be done for oikodome. How do you do this? How do you do this? Give me the practicum, right? Paul gives three specific instructions and a fourth to wrap it up. Number one, follow the protocol for the gift of languages. Follow the protocol for the gift of languages. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. 
Now, there is a principle here that we must not miss. Every gift, and you can almost see how, it, how by putting tongues first in the protocols to follow, every gift is subject to regulation. Every gift is subject to regulation. Like every other gift given by God, this gift too was something that the giftee, the person that received, possessed and then would have it under their control. This means that when the Holy Spirit gifts the body of Christ, He never does something that you can't control, that you would spaz out or go into a frenzy. This again is paganistic ritual and practice. Over and over, the Bible warns us of practice, practices and states of mind where we are altered and we are not in a place of alertness or control. The Holy Spirit does not give gifts of ecstasies, and they are nothing like what Plato taught. They are nothing like the Platonic understanding of ecstatic behavior when you encounter the true God. So the underlying presupposition of all three protocols is that gifts can be regulated and placed under control. So in the case of tongues, and of course Paul is implicating that this is the real gift of languages and not ecstatic speech, someone like an unbelieving Jew would be able to understand this language and hence he would then be able to interpret then he could respond saying that which was said was so and so, this and that. That's the control. That's the control. Here's the limiter. Now, now for the limiter. There was to be only two, at most three, and each one in turn, so not at the same time. If there was no one then that could translate, then no one was to speak in tongues. You got that? No interpreter, no tongues. Why? Because the point of the gathering, again, was to edify, to build up. And he had already established that without an interpreter, you can't edify. So then, that is useless. Regardless if it was a real language or not, that's not the point. It's useless without an interpreter. Without this passage, I would think that most people would be excited that someone was speaking in another language, whether you understood it or not. But Paul is correcting that notion because proper doctrine, verses 1 to 25, would not lead you to think that speaking in languages alone is something to get excited about. So there is the control. Only speak in languages if there is someone to interpret. And then the limiter. Only two and at most three people speaking in languages. Some, if not most of us, have been exposed to a charismatic environment. Again, tongues as a gift has ceased because of its place and purpose. However, even if you did not believe it, is the control and limiter there? Is the control and limiter there? If not, are you not blatantly ignoring the major issue that Paul was addressing with the Corinthians? The control would stop people from exercising the gift of languages from selfish motives to lift up the self or from speaking just plain gibberish or even worse, blasphemy. That's what the control would have prevented. And the limiter would stop the cacophony of sounds just being blurted out in crazed fashion. 
It would have been one after another, and at most just maybe one more after that. However, now we see boasts that people are being slain in the Spirit, quote-unquote. Again, according to this passage, it's not the Holy Spirit that slays people. And if it's not the Holy Spirit, then it's another kind of spirit. And when they are being, quote-unquote, slain in the Spirit, it's by the masses. It's never just one or two. It's hundreds or thousands that we hear these reports of, people blurting out gibberish, laughing, barking, nibbling, whatever the case is. Now, where you have in the ESV, it says, let someone interpret. The word for someone is ace. It is the emphatic word for the number one. Ace means absolutely singular one. It's not whomever can interpret. There is only one that can interpret. You can maybe have two or three with different languages perhaps, but one can interpret. And you might be thinking, why is Paul being so restrictive here? When people realize how much prominence an interpreter would have, there may be temptation to just interpret because who would know, right? Who would know? So there may be temptation for someone to just go up and interpret. And you might think, no way, there's no one that would do that. But this is even true in modern days. In 2013, Nelson Mandela's memorial, in that memorial, uh, the sign language interpreter for the entire duration of the memorial wasn't signing. He was just making up a fake version of it, and he just flapped his arms and wiggled his fingers for a few hours. I kid you not. You think that's incredible? He literally did that for the world to see, made up some sign. In 2017, when the Tampa police arrested a serial killer for, uh, finally, for the multiple murders that this person committed, a fake signer crashed the press conference, and one of the victim's mothers in that press conference was deaf, and this fake signer was signing gibberish, and she would say, all I saw was gibberish. What is going on? How heartbreaking and infuriating is that? If there is a purpose for something, when someone would abuse that and misuse that and pervert that, how infuriating and heartbreaking is that? And so when you have one interpreter and that person is a fake, all the people would know that this language is fake and would immediately tell that person you are a fugazi, you are a faker. You would then be able to tell who really does have the gift of interpretation. And if no one could interpret, then there's no need for tongues. Again, if there is no one to interpret, this is what the Word of God says, if there is no one to interpret, there is no need for tongues. Picture the person going up and trying to speak in a language that no one knows and can interpret. Then what's he supposed to do? Then he's supposed to go back down and talk to himself and God. The picture here is kind of ridiculous. Imagine a guy walking to the corner and then muttering to himself. And then you might be thinking after reading this, is Paul just being savage? He is savage, but not for savage's sake. 
He's reminding the Corinthian church the point of gifts. Again, what's the point of gifts? It's to edify. So you will not have 100 or 1,000 people in the ancient church speaking in tongues. That's 97 or 997 too many. And you won't have someone go on and on when no one understands him. He is commanded to be silent and to go mumble himself Mumble to himself and God in the corner. And you might be like, wow, that's pretty harsh. Again, because there is never a case of the gift of languages or tongues in the Bible that is not understandable. It's always a language. So in the first protocol, we are given two regulators. One is to control and the other is to limit. These guiding principles are what is to guide our gifts inside the church. If only just these two regulations were still held on to by those that would even claim the tongue exists today, we would see a complete change in the misuse of these gifts as well. Number two, the protocol, the second protocol, is for the gift of prophecy. In verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The protocols laid out for tongues and not for prophecy would tell you that these two were probably greatly abused and misunderstood. Prophecy is, in fact, a spectacular gift. It was a vital gift. So these weren't prophecies from prophets of old. These were prophets in the apostolic era. Again, the canon was not complete yet. That means the Bible was not fully closed yet. So God spoke through the apostles and the prophets of the time. And when, when a revelation was given, doctrinal instruction accompanied it. So if someone had a revelation or they thought they had a revelation, they could get up to share. And here's the limiter. Let two or three prophets speak. Only two or three. And here's the control. Let others weigh what is said. Everyone else then is to judge. That's what weighing is. Weighing is judging to see if what was being said was true. So again, even in the protocol of prophecy, there are the guiding regulators, the control and the limiter. There is never a time when everyone jumps up and down practicing their gifts. I'll mention this again, that tongue ceased. It is never mentioned again after this letter, after this portion in Scripture. It's only mentioned in the beginning of Acts and in 1 Corinthians. None of Paul's letters ever mention it after this, not even 2 Corinthians. You would imagine that. Then the Corinthians, still with a plethora of problems, either had tongues completely under control now, which was unlikely. They had everything under control, especially tongues, which he talks about for three chapters. And by 2 Corinthians, they completely have it under control. So Paul doesn't even mention it once or take time to congratulate them for using it well. It's either that or it ceased. So there was no problem to have. But it's the same with prophecy. As the apostolic age began to close, prophets are never mentioned in Paul's later writings, like 1st or 2nd Timothy or Titus. 
and he instead gives church order. He starts talking about elders and deacons. In Ephesians, which is kind of like a middle book in the chronology of the letters given, Paul mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then elders, which is the shepherd teachers, in that descending order. So if you had known the prophets, people with the gift of prophecy in the church in Corinth, you could only have one prophet stand up and speak at a time while the others evaluated what was being said. And so you can imagine how chaotic it would have been when multiple people would just stand up and start shouting whatever they wanted, claiming to be prophecy. Even if it were true, it would be undiscernible from the lies. That's why you have both the limiter and the control. I would add that now we do not need prophets. There are none right now in this world today anyway because we have the fully revealed Word of God in our hands. And that is what is simply incredible. If someone stands up in the pulpit and starts to teach something, you can weigh what is being said directly with what has been written in front of you. So if someone says that tongues is a private language, for example, between just you and God, you can say no. Because the Word of God says tongues is a secondary gift subordinate to prophecy where it was a purpose, where its purpose was a sign for unbelievers, not believers, and its usage was only allowed with control, only if there's interpretation, and limits to three max. That's what we get in chapter 14. In the case of prophecy, a reminder is given that it is for encouragement. Paul wanted people to prophesy because it would build up the church. Paul didn't regulate the gifts because he was afraid of its abuse. Paul regulated the gifts so that people would be built up. He loved and he was thankful for the gifts. He thanked God for the gift of languages that he possessed. And so in the middle of this passage today, Paul inserts this gem. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is a key statement. When the church is gathered together, we ought to reflect the character of God. And God is not a God of confusion. God is not a God of chaos and disorder. God is a God of peace or harmony. And there is order in that harmony. There is a manifest design that we can witness. Nothing is haphazardly done, but it is regulated. This is why we hold to the regulative principle of worship. This means that we believe that the Bible has given us precise principles and regulations that we need to worship God. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see that God is a God of order and that he is to be worshipped in the order that he dictates. Our worship is not based on emotions, although emotions many times do follow, but it's not based on feelings, as if our feelings on a matter were always right. In my personal experience, when it came down to the most important things in my life, when it came down to the most important things in my life, feelings often betrayed me. And it's not simply based on tradition. Traditions have led to unrepentant and hardened hearts. Our worship must be based on the Word of God. Scripture alone can dictate to us the forms and regulations of worship.
And I believe as we become sanctified, all these other things, emotions, feelings, tradition, all these other things will follow because these things are subject to the scriptures. When you see a church truly submissive to the word of God, I believe it would truly be then a beautiful sight. <clears throat> when we visited St. Andrews in Florida, which was R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul's church, uh, when we visited that church in Florida, one of our staff members, I'm not going to say who, but she would be tearing throughout the service, right? Because our worship is subject, means our worship is submission to the Word of God. And when you see that, there is true beauty in that because what is being reflected is not just humanistic tradition. It's not emotions only. It's not feelings. What is being reflected is the character of God. And that's what brings everything else under submission and control. On that principle, we have the third protocol. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And you be like, well, how, how did this get in here? Who did this, right? The Lord believed that the church needed to hear this, so he says it again through Paul in these short verses. God is a God of order. It's impossible then to miss the symmetry from chapter 11 when he talks about how women are to conduct themselves in the gathered space to how Paul closes off the instructional site with worship and order in these verses with the woman again, by mentioning it again. I took two Sundays to go over what a godly woman was according to 1 Corinthians 11, and you're more than welcome to listen to that or our two podcasts on complementarianism. But in, the, in case, like many liberal theologians, you thought that instruction on women or sex is all cultural, here Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints. Paul never gives instructions that would contradict instructions to another church, no matter what time or place. The church always, in the Bible, when the church is mentioned, it always means the gathered assembly of Christ. And here today, this gathered assembly in Christ is no exception. And he reminds the Corinthians, because God is a God of order and peace, and because these are instructions for all the churches, you being no exception, women should keep silent in churches. Silence is a place of submission, and submission is a place of learning. You can't learn if you are not submitted. And perhaps Paul was preparing the church for elders to come in 1 Timothy, but only a few qualified men were to preach and teach, while the rest submitted to learning. Many of you have known me for over a decade. I love the place of learning, and I still do. Being the main teacher is never something I coveted. I never understood the big hoopla of people wanting to become elders. They will be judged more severely. It's a scary, scary thing. 
for temporary earthly status, you want to risk eternal punishment? You either don't believe what the Bible and James is writing and giving to teachers, or you don't believe the reward for obedience is greater than any earthly status you could ever attain. This is not a denigration of women. My wife is strong. You can ask her yourself. She will tell you she has never lost a fight with me. But she will also tell you who has been given the responsibility and weight of leading the household. We didn't rock, paper, scissor to see who gets to lead. We didn't compare resumes to see who was best fit. Authority is given by God, and he has dictated who leads the home and who leads the church because this isn't simply cultural. For the past last 70 years or so, we have moved rapidly to try and repudiate the Bible's claims on gender roles, and we see now even a more rapid decline in family and societal stability. Because if God is a God of order and peace, not following God will be following confusion, chaos, disorder. What undergirds then isn't love, because without God there is no love. The only things left then, if you take God out, the only things left is James 3.16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. People think they can live without God. You can take out one portion of the Bible, perhaps. You may think that that's okay. This is just cultural, but you then don't have the word of God. You have your own wisdom because you're dictating what you think is God and what is not. And the verse right before tells us what kind of wisdom that is in James 3.15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Wow, that's a little harsh, no? Aren't people who still believe like a little halfway, aren't they still your brothers and sisters? They just don't want to follow some portions of the Bible. And besides, they're not primary issues, right? And this is what the Lord said himself in John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And, he, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's a lie when you hear that these regulations are too restricting. They're too limiting. It's a lie. It's a lie when they tell you, you need to be free of all these regulations. We're free in Christ. Just, that's what people will say. So you don't have to follow anything that the Bible says. By the way, that's antinomianism. But it's just as it was a lie now. It is a lie now than it was back then. Back when? When the serpent said, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the Hebrew understanding will help us interpret. Knowing good and evil is the range of all things. You will know the range of all things. You will be like God, which means you can dictate 
what is good and evil. You can dictate your roles. You can dictate your gender. You can dictate your sexual identity, who you want to have sex with. You can do all of these things because you will not die because you will be like God. That's the first lie. And in 2021, we still have a myriad of people falling for this same lie. But in the very next chapter, in chapter 15, Paul will go on to write, the sting, of death is sin, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord. Obey his word. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And this brings us back then to the order that God has given us. Women are to stay silent in the church, learn from their husbands, and not disrupt the service. This flow and order of where the husbands love and lead and wives submit to this leading and respond to that love, that's what glorifies God. And as we have learned, it is because it ultimately points, it ultimately points, all this ultimately points to Christ and the church. The picture of husbands and wives in the church should be a witness to the world of Christ and his bride. These are the roles given to us, and they are not burdensome. This is our victory over sin. Verse 36, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. In these final verses, Paul is challenging those who would challenge him and his previous words. Do you think that you are the only ones with this deep scriptural knowledge? Do you have a special dispensation that trumps every other word in the law and scriptures? No? Then obey and edify as God instructs you to. Because if anyone thinks that they have a gifting, whether it was to be a prophet or some other spiritual gift, you should recognize that I am speaking to you the very word of God. If you don't bring that gift into submission of what was just written to you, then you do not have a legitimate gift. If you don't regulate your services with the protocols I've given, with limits and control, your service is not legitimate. Because if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. This is quite the scary statement. I don't see how anyone could come into the gathering then with a heart of disobedience. I don't see how anyone could come into the gathering with, with a heart of rebellion or disorder, of something to usurp any kind of order that was there. Summing up to the Corinthian church, he says, earnestly, earnestly desire to prophesy. Don't forbid tongues, but everything must be done in order because it must reflect the character of God. When someone comes in a into a church service, they should see God reflected. Not the God that they want to see, 
not the God that they think they should see, but the God who was and is and is to come, the beauty of the one true God, the wondrous God of the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning that we can listen to your word, be challenged. And Lord, we pray now for your Holy Spirit to transform us. For only by your help can we be changed, can we be saved, justified, and sanctified. And so we entrust our lives to you now. And we confess that you are our Lord and Savior, lifting up our hearts to you in submission to your word. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what we have been given and what is it that we are not submitting to the Lord in? What is it that there is this sprout of disorder, perhaps even rebellion, that we must now repent of and give back to the Lord so that our worship is pleasing to God, not detestable? Let's pray and ask God to change us that we may more and more, day by day, moment by moment, become sanctified, maturing in Christ, glorifying Him, and walking in the joy and the peace that He has prepared for us. Let's pray.